Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zhoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and Dalibor Rohash, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are joined by Ian Brzezinski, um, who is uh, currently a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council, in case anyone who listens to this doesn't know him yet. Um, and he also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary um, for Defense um, of Europe uh, during the Bush administration. Ian, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining. Um, we want to talk about many things with you, um, including and first and foremost, the Three Cs Initiative. But before we get into that, um, I guess we have to talk a little bit, taking advantage of you here. We, um, in our previous episode, we had um, Ben Hodges, another friend um, of our community, and we talked to him about the counteroffensive, but that was already a few days ago. Um, and so now we are um, on Monday, September 12th. Um, it's been a crazy ride through the weekend. Um, Ian, you've been following uh, it too. So can you give us your take on how things are going and what we can expect in the next few weeks? Thanks, Yulia. And uh, thank you and Giselle and Dalibor for all you've been doing to highlight the significance of the Black Sea region and to promote a more effective transatlantic strategy to promote peace and stability in this important and dynamic part of Europe. Regarding recent developments in Ukraine, these are very significant. I mean, we're seeing a counteroffensive here that was expected, but that has evolved in a way that I think has surprised everyone. First, uh, the real thought was that the main thrust was going to be to, to, to the south, toward Kherson, but much of everyone, particularly to Russia's surprise, the most dynamic movements have been in the north, around Kharkiv, where nearly a thousand kilom square kilometers or more have been retaken in, with dramatic speed and, and effectiveness. So this has underscored, I think, first, the tenacity uh, and ingenuity and courage of the Ukrainian armed forces. It's, it displayed yet once again, the difficulties the Russian armed forces face, the beleaguered state of their personnel, their lack of discipline and training, uh, and lack of commitment to, to the battle. Uh, whether or not this is gonna be a turning point in the war is yet to be seen, but it's certainly good news for those of us who wanna see Ukraine regain its, its territories have been seized by the Russians. Uh, I still believe that we're in for a long haul in, 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 this, wall, in this war, but the events of the last couple of days give us even greater confidence that the Ukrainians will ultimately prevail. Ian, yeah, I mean, it, your experience in, in American policy for this region is longstanding. And uh, as Yulia suggested earlier, the, the uh, southeastern part of the continent has been a, an especial focus of yours of late. What do you anticipate the Biden administration will do? I mean, they've just 
floated the prospect of another large arms package to come in the uh, period after the elections. But I guess one has to worry a little bit that there will be a, an inclination to take the foot off the gas to a certain degree, or at least some elements uh, in the public debate will will recommend that and to find a way to make it easy for Russia to uh, uh, to to cut its losses, so to speak. As you as you project what will happen, not only in the United States, but in the West more broadly, how do you see things breaking over the next couple of weeks or so? Well, my hope is, is that the success the Ukrainians are having on the battlefield are, are going to spark even greater confidence uh, within the transatlantic community, across the transatlantic community, in, in Ukraine's prospects for success. And uh, that will, at a minimum, I think, lead the West to sustain the current level of support they're giving to the Ukrainians. Support in terms of military equipment, which has actually become quite a substantive flow. It could be higher and it could involve more capability. But right now, it's, it's very clear that the equipment the West has been providing, particularly the United States, are having a strategic impact on, on the battlefield. Uh, this kind of success will probably make the Europeans a little bit more conf confident uh, in the prospect of, of sustaining and enduring uh, the kind of economic pressure that, uh, that Putin could be expected to, to place upon them, i.e. a full cutoff of, of oil and gas. I think they're gonna be more heartened to undertake that, uh, that, that challenge, seeing success in, in, in the battlefield. And I think you'll see a sustainment of the current level of economic sanctions on, on Russia. With that said, I, I think the West now should be doing even more. The wind behind the Ukraine's back over the last six or seven days now is the time to further increase the flow of ammunition, of weapons platforms, weapons platforms with even greater capability, perhaps even aircraft to the Ukrainians. Now is the time to actually ratchet up even harder the economic sanctions on, on Russia so that the political effect that this, um, uh, these setbacks are, are having in, inside Russia can be amplified, uh, amplified by harsher economic sanctions. What struck me uh, or frustrated me so much over these last months is that the economic sanctions the West is putting on Russia have been so half-hearted. I mean, look at this right now. Ukraine is projected to lose some 45% of its GDP this year due to this conflict, on top of having one-third of its population displaced and much of uh, its industry literally destroyed. Economic sanctions on Russia have only are only resulting in a marginal decrease in its GDP. It's projected to be somewhere between four and 6% this year. Now is the time to go to a complete trade embargo on Russia to really shut it off from the international economy so that the economic pressure is really felt across all of Russia. Those are things that need to be done now as the Ukrainians are driving forward with this success. I think that, that, that sort of breakthrough that we saw in Ukraine over the weekend is exactly what the Ukrainians needed in order for, for, for this for for this sort of political momentum to be to be sustained towards towards aid and 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 also sanctions imposed on on on, on, on Russia to, to, to remain in place. But there are fairly significant headwinds, whether it's the energy prices in Europe or something that 
uh, the subject of an of an email exchange among AI foreign policy scholars earlier today, uh, prompted by a tweet from from Elbridge Colby, who uh, linked to this uh, Kiel Institute tracker in Germany that measures the contributions of different countries towards uh, military assistance to Ukraine. Uh, and really the magnitude of, 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 of the difference between the contribution that the US is making versus the contributions made by, by individual European countries is, is astounding, right? You have between, between January and August, um, the US sent close to 25 billion worth of equipment uh, and military assistance to Ukraine, uh, followed by 4 billion from the UK, followed by 1.8 billion from Poland, followed by by everybody else and while we on this podcast strongly believe that that's the right thing to do for the united states and it's very much in the america in america's interest um it's been as of late very difficult to make that case politically you saw today uh or as before the weekend actually just before the weekend heritage action opposing uh the new sort of tranche of of assistance that that the administration is requesting from from Congress and uh, and I suspect that we will need to I guess mount serious political counter arguments against those who say uh, that America is getting fleeced in all this and that the Europeans should be doing more and 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 that you know at some point enough is enough. So so if you can think of a good political counter argument to to this narrative which has been gaining dominance, uh, especially on, 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 on the American right. We would love to hear it. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I think assertions by those organizations are really, um, they're politically short-sighted or geopolitically short-sighted, if not irresponsible, because now is not the time to be making political arguments against an administration. And I'm not saying this as a Republican, but to really, you know, hunker down and do what's necessary to get everyone to do more, including the United States. And, you know, arguments that I make is why this investment, why this assistance is well worthwhile uh, when it comes down to U.S. interests is as follows. I mean, think of what, what is at stake in this war. I mean, first and obviously, Ukraine sovereignty is at stake. Uh, but it's not just territory uh, that's at stake, not Ukrainian, just Ukrainian territory that's at stake. It's the very existence of Ukrainian people, Ukrainian history, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language. I mean, we're in a situation now here where Putin's not just aiming at territory. He wants to redefine on his own terms Ukrainian history, culture, and language. We haven't seen something like this since World War II. I mean, that's serious. The international rules-based order is a threat. I mean... If we allow the, the, the Russians to occupy even or annex even more of, of, of Ukraine and get away with this, we're going to be slipping back into a world that's dominated by um, military coercion. Might is right. That's a recipe for, uh, for increased volatility, confrontation, if not conflict. Uh, and in this case, with probably an even more robust nuclear edge to it. Russia's own evolution as a, as, a, as a state is at stake in this conflict. My dad was a Sovietologist during the Cold War. And after the end of the Cold War, he used to emphasize that, you know, Russia will never become a democracy, never become a truly normal international actor or truly shed its imperial aims as long as it's an empire. And if Putin 
you know, is allowed to resuborn Ukraine through brute military force, it will be an empire once again. Uh, and we'll probably be dealing with further Russian aggression elsewhere in Europe. You know, and the opposite is true if Putin gets decisively defeated. I think if he's decisively defeated, the prospects for democracy, the prospects for Russia evolving into a more constructive international actor actually increases. Uh, NATO's own uh, credibility at stake is this. I mean, some people will come out and say it's not NATO allies, it doesn't matter. Not true at all. I mean, Ukraine is just not some European country. It's right on the border of NATO. It's a European democracy with the most politically tolerant societies. It's a country that's contributed to NATO military operations around the world, was even contributing to the NATO response force up until uh, this, this invasion. So there's no way that NATO's credibility can't be harmed uh, by failure in, 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 in Ukraine. That's a, lot of, that's a lot at stake. And that's why it's in the US interest to ensure and to support Ukrainian success uh, on, on the battlefield, to help Ukraine reconstitute itself. This is not just for Ukraine, this is for you know, literally to preserve the world order that's been the basis of peace and prosperity ever since World War II. It's a long <laughs> argument and some may find it difficult to, to, to follow, but that's the bottom line. Well, I, I'd just like to pile on for a sec, if I could. I mean, uh, first of all, if, you know, there are lots of ways to calculate burden sharing. And certainly if you look at the relative wealth of the countries involved and calculate the contribution by slice of gross domestic product, the rankings look somewhat different. In fact, I think one of the Baltic states is at the top yep, of the Estonia. list. Yeah, correct. Um, but secondly, it's, it's just morally short-sighted. Uh, I mean, how do you put a price tag on the willingness of frontline states to take in refugees um, and to do other forms of humanitarian relief? Uh, I mean, uh, Again, the, the if you're talking about disproportionate burdens, it's the Eastern European states who are carrying a far, far heavier load than we are. Now, I would say that look, look like Elbridge Colby probably wouldn't contradict you in 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 that. He would he will say that uh, how about the Western European countries that are not really you know carrying as much of a burden in terms of you know refugee inflows and 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 are helping significantly less intensely than than the United States yet. But no, no episode of the podcast. No episode of the podcast would be complete without a little Germany bashing. <laughs> yeah, but you got to think about. I, have, I mean, I, I do have to say that you know, like the there was the German defense minister was at a conference of some sort, and yet again. <laughs> you know, could not summon sufficient enthusiasm for uh, uh, for doing much of anything today or in a timely way. But uh, I'll, I'll defer to Ian in this. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, look, I'm as sensitive as to anyone about burden sharing, but it's really right now the moment to get into bean counting on burden sharing. Ukrainians are dying on the battlefield, basically in support of our own values and interests. So it's not the right time for that, for, for that discussion. It's a short-sighted discussion at a moment now, especially when the Ukrainians are beginning to make some serious progress. Now's the time for us to buckle down and do what we can and get others to do what we can 
rather than infer we should have a cutoff because you know, our, our accountants aren't coming up with an equal division of labor. I want to, uh, in this context, throw another softball. I can't help myself because this is so good. Um, but, but because I wanted to talk about the Three Cs initiative, I think one of the arguments that we're seeing here also on the right is we shouldn't be focusing on Russia because that's not a threat. China is a threat. And then there comes Ian, <laughs> who says, um, but yes, we must be fighting um, China and Chinese um, encroachment into particularly critical infrastructure in Eastern Europe. There's numerous examples of the Ukrainian-Chinese relationship before the war, thank God, that's now crumbling apart. But in my understanding, the Three Cs initiative has been targeted exactly on that, covering so far EU, Central and Eastern European territory. So Ian, can you tell us a little bit more about the initiative overall, um, what it's been targeted at, and how we can think about fighting Russia and China um, at the same time with effective means um, across Europe? I think there are two issues here. There's one, you know, China, as it fits into a broader uh, geopolitical dynamic globally, and then two, there's the Three Seas Initiative. On, on the first, you know, we're in a world now of, of course, renewed great power competition, and it's more complicated than great power competition during the Cold War, which was basically a bilateral affair. Now we're entering a trilateral affair. And when I look at the dynamics um, in today's great power competition, what I see is a Russian great power uh, that is challenging US interests, particularly in, in Europe. And it is an acute and urgent threat. It is the threat of the day. And it's one that can't be ignored. It's one that has apocalyptic dynamics to it because Russia is a nuclear power. So we can't ignore that aggression. And then on the other hand, you have China, which is a growing uh, power, a power with increasing global reach economically and militarily, and is developing an increasingly capable large nuclear arsenal. It's a more complex, more challenging threat, but it's perhaps not as urgent as immediate as Russia. And the fact of the matter is, is we have to deal with both. And we're gonna be most effective in dealing with both if we deal with both together with our transatlantic allies and partners, just in terms of being having maximum effect on those two on those two challenges. Regarding the three C's, the three C's was launched in 2016 by the Central Europeans. It's a 12-nation effort to accelerate the development of cross-border energy, transport, and digital infrastructure in the region between the Baltic, the Black, and the Adriatic Seas. It's all about economic integration, not in terms of regulatory integration, but infrastructural integration to create essentially a single European marketplace. It's this, these 12 nations are EU member nations between those three Cs, Central Europeans and, and, and Austria. And the idea is to expand and deepen the infrastructural ties between the region and Western Europe and within the Central European region itself. You know, it takes today two to four times longer uh, to travel from Tallinn to the, to the Black Sea than it, goes, it takes to travel from London to the, to the Mediterranean because of lack of infrastructure and infrastructure gap. 
So they're addressing this and they're addressing this in an innovative way. What they're trying to do is leverage the power of the free market to drive forward uh, infrastructural development. And what they're betting on is that when you take a region that's got 110 million people, that's got a GDP of some $2 trillion, that has a growth rate uh, prior to COVID of about 3, 3.3% as a region, and that was projected out to 2030, and they're basically on still a high growth region as we pull out of COVID. You throw on top of that an infrastructure deficit that's measured to be about somewhere between 500 billion and trillion dollars, you have a huge investment opportunity. And that will attract private capital into the region to drive forward these needed infrastructure projects in the energy, transport, and digital domains. And toward that end, they've launched a unique new public-private partnership, taking their own monies, government monies, pooling it together, and placing it under commercial management uh, of an investment fund that's using roughly about a billion dollars to help spark these kind of infrastructure projects in, in, in the region and to do so on purely commercial terms. It's basically fire and forget money put under the Amber Infrastructure Group of London that's now directing mm -hmm. these money based on the desire to have high rates of return. This is gonna highlight the region's potentials. And I think it's gonna be catalytic in terms of driving in or shepherding in the FBI that's critical to this infrastructural development program. But is there a China connection? Because I've always seen or looked at the Three Seas Initiative at and the United States since 2016, particularly until this war, um, as uh, focusing on, on targeting strategic investments um, in parallel or sometimes even in competition to what China was doing with the 16 plus one, then 17 plus one, and now it's, I don't know, lower. 15, <laughs> um, I think now. 15, yeah, I think three left. Um, and so um, and so, where, um, have you have you thought about the Three Seas Initiative ever that way? What role does China now play in Central and Eastern Europe um, as we're looking at, um, yes, the Three Seas Initiative as private investments, but also uh, an important pledge from the United States under the um, Pompeo administration of, I think, a billion, right? Um, how, where does China fit into all of this? Well, three C's has always been driven by what I say, a positive agenda. And I say this as an observer because this is a central European launch and led initiative. And what I've observed, it's, it's driven by their desire to complete the vision of a Europe that's undivided, whole and free and secure and, 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 and prosperous. And there are addressing you know, underlying gap uh, that's inhibiting the completion of, of, of that vision. So this is all about creating uh, through infrastructure, uh, you know, a single European marketplace. That's the benefit of all, leveraging the geoeconomic potentials and strengths of, the, of, of, of this region. Does it serve as a useful uh, alternative to 17, 15, 16 plus one? Does it provide an alternative to Russian in, in, in investment? Absolutely. Because who, what would you rather have? Chinese investment with all this you know, political and sometimes uh, 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 economic leverage that, that comes with it? Same with Russia in terms of its, its current management and its ambitions. Or would you like to have something that's driven by the free market? Uh, 
that's what, what the Central Europeans are, are, are opting for. That's what they're presenting. And what they're trying, and the value, I would say, of the US commitment made initially by Pompeo and the Trump administration, it was first a billion dollar um, commitment to invest in Central European energy projects, because that's how the money was tailored by, by Congress. Um, and then it became actually a direct investment, a commitment to directly invest into the three C's fund, $300 million in that end. The Biden administration has reanimated that, um, that latter commitment of 300 million. And I think th they announced at the Riga three C's summit in Riga last, last June, that they're gonna actually deliver on this. And they've come to, they announced that uh, the three C's fund and DFC, the, the US Development Finance Corporation have agreed to a term sheet and they're now basically putting into a contract. And hopefully that will be done sometime soon, maybe before the end, end of the year. That could be catalytic because I think the moment you have a US dollar in that fund, that's gonna actually raise the, uh, the, the level of, uh, of, of notoriety of, this, of, this, of, 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 of the fund, reducing perhaps some perceptions of risk of, of, of the fund and investment in the region. Having a US dollar is gonna, I think, you know, generate greater investor confidence in, in the whole initiative, attracting therefore more commercial attention, if not investment, into the fund and into the region. Go ahead. I just had a little sort of addendum to to what was being being discussed about about China's role in all all, all this, and, and and that's just the observation that um, there has been a lot of talk about massive Chinese investment into infrastructure in Central and Eastern Europe, but part of the frustration that Central Eastern European governments have had with China is that none of those promises were really kept. I mean, with some prominent exceptions, Belgrade, Budapest. The Serbian highway to nowhere, yeah. Uh, <laughs> et cetera, but, but like it's, and especially now as China is going through an economic slowdown and fallout from, 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 from COVID, like there won't be any billions of dollars flowing, flooding, you know, the region from China and, and Chinese firms building highways and and gas pipelines. That's just not in the car. So, uh, and certainly it's not commensurable to, to the size of the infrastructure deficit, if you will, that, that, that these countries are trying to, uh, trying to bridge. So, 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 there are, I think, natural limits to to how far China can can get, and I think many countries. I mean, the, you know, the Czech Republic in particular is an example that's sort of close to 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 me uh, that I've been watching closely. Like that, there had been lots of promises, very flamboyant, extravagant promises. You know, buying shares in in the state-owned air carrier, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and 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 all of that just fizzled away within within years. Conversely, um, you know, the Chinese took advantage of the fact that, that that there was not investment by others. I mean, this is the problem that we've talked about repeatedly, sort of the lack of attention paid to Central and Eastern Europe increasingly over the last decade or more. But I want to try to turn the car around to go back to talk about a, a subject that you raised earlier Ian, and particularly when you're talking about your father's skepticism about uh, fundamental change in Moscow at the end of the Cold War, because this was actually a subject that we were discussing amongst ourselves while we were uh, setting up. I'd be very interested to get your 
view on this. Okay, so especially after this weekend, it's we can now imagine a successful conclusion to the Ukraine war. That raises the question of what happens after that, and in particular, um, are we any closer to solving Europe's Russia problem or the world's Russia problem? So I'd be interested in um, either, uh, you know, channeling the ghost of your father or your own views on uh, um, what is to be done about uh, about Russia, even after it's beat back into its borders. Well, I guess a word of caution and then a op more optimistic note, you know, we should all be celebrating the great success that Ukrainians have had these last couple of days. But let's not forget this is still an ongoing war that, you know, a counteroffensive is an offensive, which by definition is more difficult than being on the defense. So the quote unquote, the burden of the weight of conflict is now heavier on, on the Ukrainians to take back what was taken from them because they have to be on the offensive more manpower, takes more ammunition, it takes more equipment, and often takes higher levels of sacrifice. It's a more difficult operation. Second, even though the West is providing a lot of assistance, there are some fundamentals that uh, are still to Russia's favor. You know, remember before the war started, Russia had a GDP of roughly 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars. Ukraine, I think was 115, 120, 130 billion dollars. I was gonna be $100 billion dollars. The Russian economies projected contract by only four to six percent, as I mentioned. Ukrainian economy is probably at forty-five percent or more. And they suffered uh, half a trillion dollars of destruction too. Half a trillion dollars destruction. A third of the population is displaced. Six million of their of their forty-five have, have fled have fled the country. I mean, that's a different le level of hit. You're talking about a population of one hundred forty-five million uh, versus what roughly forty-five million. Uh, there, there are some real advantages the Russians have in terms of weight. They have advantage in terms of the barbarity of Russians' tactics. You know, the Russian, the Ukrainians are very selective in the way they, 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 they direct their force. You know, they're doing it because they're good warriors, in part because they want to preserve what they're trying to reacquire. Uh, Putin has destroyed, decided terror to the max uh, is his strategy. Grind everything down, kill as many people as you can, destroy everything trying to do whatever is necessary to break the Ukrainian state, to break the Ukrainian people. That's unfortunately an advantage to, 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 to the Russians and more power to the Ukrainians for not falling into that, into that track. Uh, and the big variable out there is what will the West do? And uh, there are basically kind of three scenarios. One scenario is that, let me put it this way, Russia has two strategies, grind down the Ukrainians and then to break the political will of the West by cutting off its energy supplies. And, and by cutting off its energy supplies, exacerbate the economic situation, particularly in Western Europe, you know, aggravated by inflation, higher gas prices, you know, create political unease, unrest, stimulate populist movements, create internal division within the nations and di division between the nations. Basically cause, cause the West to go no mas. It's almost like he's a Leninist, uh, believing that the West you know, will never, capitalist economies, capitalist states will never have the political will to really endure. That's his bet. So option number one is the West caves. Uh, it says, no, nah, we can't take this anymore and really pressures the Ukrainians um, to, to concede. 
And they do that by really leveling off the level of military assistance and not increasing sanctions, if maybe even reducing sanctions on Russia. Not totally out of the possible. I'm, I'm more confident that won't happen now with the Ukrainian success. The second scenario is the West holds firm, sustains current levels of military equipment and ammunition transfers and intelligence sharing and such, enough to keep Ukrainians moving kind of forward, uh, but doesn't really increase dramatically sanctions on, 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 on Russia, which allows Russia to finance the war. That to me, I'm still worried that's a recipe for a prolonged conflicts, which I don't think time is on Ukraine's side. And then the third is that, wow, people look what the Ukrainians are doing now, motivated by it, inspired by it, have more confidence in Ukrainians, and actually further increase the flow of security, you know, military assistance, ammunition, the types of military equipment we give with greater capability to give the Ukrainians even more momentum, and then really ratchet down economic sanctions in Russia, really causing economic pain, really cutting it off, causing that 6% drop to drop down to 45, 50%, if not more this year. Then all of a sudden you really start seeing the prospects of the Ukrainians having a true victory, reacquiring the territory that was so unjustly seized from them. Those are the three scenarios looking forward. Probably the middle one is the most likely. And then so, last, where, where does Russia go? Well, you know, if Putin's allowed to succeed, he'll stay in power and he'll bite for more. There'll be more in Ukraine. It could be more against other countries like the Balts. Uh, or Georgia again, I have no doubt about that. When, 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 when hegemons reward themselves with success, they tend to get hungrier. They never get satiated. The appetite increases with the eating. Yeah, and then conversely, I would argue, you know, if Putin's decisively defeated, uh, it's gonna be, the Russian people are gonna become very aware of the cost of this, of this, of this, uh, of, of this incursion, of this special operation. And I think that's going to change the political landscape in Russia, just as the defeat in Afghanistan helped change the landscape in the Soviet Union back in the 1980s. Since we mentioned China earlier, I wonder if there is another variable that we might sort of introduce into, into, this, into, into, into this calculus, and that is specifically China. So, so right before launching the invasion, Putin concluded at the Beijing Olympics this you know, pact of friendship for eternity with China, and then he without said, limits, without limits, without and then, limits. then he then he then he launched this, I mean, rather ill-advised special military operation, probably embarrassing his 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 new ally in 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 Beijing. But but it as as our as our colleague Hal Brands pointed out on Twitter, it's certainly not in China's interest for Putin to fail completely. And and be and for Russia to be you know humiliated and you know dismembered and unable to 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 to, to wreak havoc on on in in, in in Europe for 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 the coming decades. So so that raises the question: if you know, like within the realm of the possible, the regime in Beijing will not try to do something to help, whether it's military assistance, whether it's you know going around the existing sanctions regime. Like it's you know it's, it's it's it would be costly for the Chinese. It would carry risks of you know new unwanted confrontations with, with 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 with, with the West. Uh, but I wonder if we can rule it out, especially in a situation where uh, it looks like Russian military efforts in Ukraine are you know going down the drain, while the Russians have to buy drones from Iran and and artillery shells from North Korea. 
Well, I guess the first point I would say, I never rule anything out, but I would say this relationship between this partnership between Russia and, uh, and, 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 and China is one of the most unequal strategic relationships I've ever seen. I mean, look at it. One is a trillion dollar, 17 to trillion dollar economy, over a billion people. It's got some of the world's best technology. It's warring us in terms of hypersonics, AI, quantum computing, and that sort of thing. And the other is a $1.2 trillion struggling gasoline station, to use the words of John McCain. It's got only one product, that's oil and gas, and its biggest market's about to dry up because it's cutting it off on its own. Um, and despite all the language and great deals between China and, and Russia on oil and gas, they're just not materializing in any dramatically dramatic way. They'll take time. The infrastructure isn't even there yet for, for, for it to mature. So what I, what I see is really China using Russia as a guinea pig. Uh, I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is basically the best thing that she could want because testing the West's response uh, to this, uh, this invasion, you know, this invasion. And, you know, if Russia wins, that's great uh, for, for China. It probably will increase his confidence for his other ambitions, perhaps even a military attack on Taiwan. They learn how the West responds or doesn't respond. They see where the weaknesses are exploited. Exploit. If Russia loses, well, that isn't the best outcome for Xi, but at least he learns a lesson. Uh, he sees actually how strong the West is. He gets, gets a sense of what is a measure of resolve uh, that drives the, you know, the, the Western community democracies to support its values and, 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 and interests. And my hope is, is that there is a decisive victory on the Ukrainians facilitated in part by, by Western support, that will help shape Chinese policy into a more constructive, less belligerent direction. Well, it, it, it may look, I mean, Xi may think he's getting whatever there is to get out of Russia at a really discounted price, essentially by, uh, you know, whether that's measured in energy supplies over the long haul or what, or just solidifying who's the leading dog in this sled, um, you know, he is willing to go ahead with this, where is it, in Kazakhstan? I forget where they're having their, uh, their summit, but this is the first time she's been out of the country since the COVID pandemic started. So it does sort of at least hint that the Chinese see something of value in pursuing some sort of, you know, partnership or best friends forever uh, yeah. kind of well, a thing. Yeah. She has to be a little bit careful because, uh, you know, if, if he crosses a, some line in its support for Russia, he's going to end up triggering sanctions against the Chinese economy. And of course, no one wants to go down that route, but his economy isn't exactly all that uh, oh, robust yeah. and resilient right now. Yeah. There's a certain amount of fragility to it. And here he is in the midst of a leadership succession. And the last thing he needs is economy further sinking when he's already having great difficulty handling COVID. I mean, while everybody else, well, not everybody else, but much of the rest of the world, particularly the developed rest of the world is kind of climbing out of it. Chinese seems to be it's on slipping a step back every so often into it. So Xi wants Putin to succeed clearly. I would love to have a black eye on, 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 on the West. But I don't think his, um, he's willing to invest all that much into it. Yeah, sure. 
All right. So, um, Ian, we would have loved to talk further. There's a few other topics that I Let's that we wanted back. to talk. Let's, Let's have, have you back. We need to talk about love to come back. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. From me, Yulia Zoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Bella Buraj. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front newsletter is now live. You can sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive a bi-weekly update of newly released episodes, exclusive questions and answers with us, your hosts, and to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges, facing the Eastern Front. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.